0: So, the reading is taken from Luke chapter 7, beginning to read at verse 36. So, Luke chapter 7. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him And what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he cancelled the debts of them both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house, you did not give me any water for my feet But the one who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Amen.
1: Thank you, Judith. So we continue our identity teaching series, laying or relaying the, some of the basic fundamentals of our identity in Christ. This is a really good one, I think, for beginning Advent with, if you're thinking about preparing your heart to welcome Jesus again uh, through the celebration of Christmas. It is an F, and this is your last quiz question. I am... Any guesses? Funny? Funny? No. (laughs) Forgiven. No prizes for that off the back of that. Um, Great reading from Luke's Gospel. I love it. Just verses before... Um, that Jesus is being accused of, of being the one who hangs out with, with sinners and tax collectors, and then the next, in the next breath, he's saying yes to the invitation from Simon the Pharisee. It's like touche. And uh, the Pharisees, um, Simon the Pharisee, this is like the equivalent, I guess, in our consciousness of an evangelical Christian, someone who's completed the year of biblical literacy, completed the reading plan, is confidence that they are on the right side of things, that, that they're on God's side, even that God is on their side. So Jesus goes along to Simon's place, takes a seat at Simon's table, and the next thing we know is that a woman with a dubious reputation is, is making a right scene at Jesus' feet, and she's, she's weeping, and she's fallen down there, and, and her tears are kind of falling onto Jesus' feet, and she's using, she takes down her hair and and cleans them up, puts oil in the middle of this party. She's there breaking this jar and putting oil on his feet. What on earth is she doing? Why is Simon so offended at it? It turns out that Simon has, rather pointedly perhaps, neglected some of the basics of hospitality. It's like me inviting you over for lunch and completely failing to put you at ease not offering to take your coat, uh, leaving you to get your own cutlery out of the drawer, not offering you a hot drink, that sort of thing. It seems like Simon is trying to shame Jesus, just to try and knock him down a couple of pegs. Like, who do you think you are then? And the woman who presumably has been recently on the receiving end of Jesus's category crossing kindness and, and um, just you know mixing things up she hears about what's going on in the home of Simon the Pharisee part of the establishment and she's not going to stand for that and she perhaps she's the sort of woman that doesn't uh, obey some of the normal social airs and graces and she just breaks in and she causes this stir this scene and it is bad taste in the extreme this is beyond bad taste this over the top act provocative act of hospitality that ensues. She's openly weeping because the sheer beauty and goodness of Jesus that she has recently been on the receiving end of is being rubbished by the establishment and she cannot stand for that. And so she gets down and she, she lets down her hair to clean these feet. This was a sexually weighted act. Did she know what she was doing? Did she know... Had to do anything else, but this was overtly intimate. It seems it would only be socially acceptable between a man and a wife. The way that she was touching him there in public, but the question is, because Simon is asking, if you know this guy was a prophet, he would know. He would see who it is that is is touching him. And the question looms as we read this story: Who is blind, and who is seeing? In 1725, we'll jump to a different story. A baby was born, called John, by his Puritan mother. But she dies when the boy is just a couple of weeks before his seventh birthday. And what is that loss going to do to a young boy's life? Especially when your father is a sea captain. By the age of 11, actually, the solution is that John is to go to sea with his dad. And this opens the door to a youth full of heavy-drinking, lawless behavior. Ends up with John being forced into the Navy, into the British Navy, and um, that doesn't turn out to be the making of him. He tries to desert. He gets demoted to the lowest rank. He gets 96 lashes laid across his back. Sent off to work then on a slave ship. Gets into the business of, of buying and shipping and selling his fellow human beings, even that doesn't work out. He falls out with the crew to the point that they desert him on the west coast of Africa. And when all that has happened in the first twenty-five years of a young man's life, you think, what's what's left? What's the next? What could possibly happen in the next chapter? Because so often it seems that the, especially like in pastoral work, and you get involved with. Um, sort of seeing inside some, some people's problems and it's just so, and we all know it actually the, this sort of predict, awful predictability of the brokenness of humanity where you see the sins of a father repeating on a generation or we inherit this brokenness of that was done to us and that forces us to, seems to force to us to do this to that person and it's a complete, this, this brokenness this mess is our inheritance and we all contribute our little part into the tragedy. One writer talks talks about the mess of of the human condition. It's this million-sided lawsuit that we're all caught up in against each other. We all have this very high potential to mess things up, to mess each other up unintentionally, purposefully, naively, spitefully, stupidly, repeatedly, always tragically. And the guilt in that is something. I remember being sat on a bench in Oxford. My heart is pounding. can hear my pulse because I'm summoning up the courage to share with a friend some of my deepest and darkest stuff. And if I'm honest, I thought, um, he's a wise guy. I think he's heard it all before. Uh, It shouldn't be too Shocking, he's probably going to smile and, um, and say, yeah, Owen, me too. Or, uh, oh, do you know what, you're not as bad as, as so-and-so over there. Like, let's pray, you know, something like that. Um, but he, well, as I told him my deepest, darkest stuff, he looked me in the eye with a sort of grief in his eyes. And he said, oh, mate, I'm really sorry to hear that gutted. And in, in, in that moment, before rushing on to, you know, there, 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 everything's gonna be alright, before rushing on, he gave me a moment to acknowledge, more deeply, more properly, acknowledge my guilt in that situation, as that's what, what he did. Guilt. 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 It is a word that we are kind of allergic to, I would say, in our therapeutic age. Um, it's sort of, either we debase the word totally into like, oh, guilty pleasure, or, um, or, we, or we treat it as a psychological problem to sort of, it's really profoundly unhelpful, unfruitful kind of emotion, feeling, situation, it inhibits joy, it kind of needs to be diluted, uh, undermines, moved on from somehow. Um, last night, I asked a stranger, this is a good line to ask a stranger, um, do you ever feel guilty? And if so, what do you do about it? Um, because I hadn't finished my talk and I was looking for extra information. And he, um, and he said, yeah, yeah, I do feel guilty. Um, and then proceeded to give me a sort of karma-based um, solution of, his. of and, and his. And I just tried to do this to kind of offset the bad and outweigh uh, some of the stuff and, and you know, be on the right side of the, the equation. The psychologist, Sigmund Freud, He recognized guilt as a hugely significant problem as well. But his solution, he's the chap in the middle there, his solution, and I don't pretend to know much about psychology and and quite what he meant, but he, he sort of labeled all of the troubled conscious stuff he attributed to our super egos. And in doing so, the effect was to demoralize guilt. Suddenly it was this categorizable psychological problem that was understood, labeled, noted, and we can move on from that absolutely there can be such a thing as false guilt but our Jewish Christian tradition insists and it's very clear that all too common all too real all too appropriate are our feelings of guilt we we feel guilt because we actually are guilty it's not a shallow phenomenon to be kind of Packaged up and and moved on from, or or balanced out by some karmic equation. The bad news is that we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And the honest acceptance of that landscape, of that fact, is fundamental to our being able to see properly. So, back to our, our scripture in Luke who is blind? Who is seeing? It turns out that Simon the Pharisee, the confident one, aiming to knock Jesus down a peg or two, is the one who is tragically blind. And it's the acknowledged sinner who is the one who sees, who is aware that the bridegroom is present at the feast. And so she is the one who acts, in fact, appropriately, with that reparative intimacy, repairing the situation. It's the self-aware sinner who sees properly. That's why on a Sunday morning we often start with a confession. It's this admission of guilt. That this is in fact the league of the guilty. We're not the sorted together virtuous ones. This is Sinners Anonymous. My name is Owen and I'm a sinner. That sort of thing. In fact... If you knew some of the thoughts that routinely buzz through my head, I'm pretty sure that many of you would be less enthusiastic about me being appointed your associate vicar to this community. But I proceed because of one thing, and that is clinging on to the Gospel of Jesus Christ, who comes to me and who come to you with this, this beautiful interruption this radical redefinition of my identity. I am a sinner, but I am forgiven. And I don't deserve it, but God looks upon me with a generosity that is wider than the oceans. And it's wonderful. He speaks this better word over my existence with this embrace that changes everything. Because despite everything... There are these, these green shoots of new life that are springing up around me and hope. And the, the tree trunks of a restored identity and a future, redemption, these things are taking root as the mercy of God comes into my life. Do you know what I'm talking about? yet? Yeah, because you can. And it's, ama- it's amazing grace. So, back in Luke's story about Jesus, back at Simon's house, and Jesus is explaining it, right? He's saying, Yeah, her sins were many, Simon. You're right. But you know what? She knows she's been forgiven. And that's why she's loving so dramatically. But the one who's been forgiven little loves little, Simon. And then he confirms it with her in front of everyone. He says, your sins are forgiven. Which sets them all going, like, who is this? Who would even presume to forgive sins, right? And of course, that's Luke's point. Jesus is the very person of God who has stepped right down into the mess of this million-sided lawsuit that we've got going. This million-sided lawsuit mass of human history in order to bring his glorious interruption to the story. His radical redefinition. We need it because the mess is real, the guilt is real. And in the whole of the Bible, the fundamental truth about sin and guilt is that it has to be paid for. It's a debt that must be cleared. It cannot be dissolved just because God says so. It's not like that. It cannot be carried forever, nor can it be somehow outweighed with goodness. It can't simply be forgotten and yet here, Jesus says to the woman, as plain as day, he says to her, your sins are forgiven. So you see, these are the words that pave the way to the cross. He says these words, he's able to say these words, because he's about to become the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, says John. And then in his last breath there, what does he say? It is finished. This radical interruption, the cost for this redemption. This redefinition is paid for. So back to John, and he's been left deserted on the west coast of Africa, and he actually gets enslaved himself, ill-treated for a while, until his father back in England hears about this, sends a rescue mission to try and bring him home. Don't know the details, but it was successful. He winds up on a ship on his way back Towards Britain until it gets to the coast of Ireland and there's a massive storm and the ship nearly goes down. There's a big hole in the side of it and John, in his desperation, cries out to God. And and there's this massive fluke straight after that where some of the cargo seems to like, well, it does roll over to the side and and plugs the gap in this sinking ship and they manage to survive. And that gets him thinking. (laughs) That gets him. Turning back to uh, the Bible, and he winds up a believer. In fact, he winds up getting ordained as an Anglican minister, and then he turns into a hymn writer who writes some of these songs. And, and he wrote one in what was it, 1772, when he's aged 47, he wrote one that was amazing grace. And if you ever sung that long, sung that line in the song um, that saved a wretch like me. And you, and you thought that's, ooh, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? Uh, it was written by a slaver who bought, shipped, sold his fellow human beings a true horror. And the dreadful consequences of that activity that he was and his crew, his crews, were engaged with, rumbles on. Uh, today. It's, it's sort of just unstoppable, the consequences of our life, this weight of being that we have. And so if you follow American politics and you see the race problems uh, today, you know, the roots of that are in this mass dehumanization and underclass that gets put into, and just struggling to cope with that still. And yet, and yet, the same guy who was involved with that penned the words to this song that when in the um, wake of the Charl- Charleston shooting and Obama is, is leading, I think, in one of the funerals and he, and he turns to song. He leads the song written by John Newton, Amazing Grace. And this is the God who turns things around, brings beauty out of the brokenness, is working his amazing grace as we open up to it. And the stories of forgiveness that came out of that episode, I think I mentioned it before, but there was one woman, Nadine Collier, who stood up in the court and she was able to face the young man who'd committed this atrocity and she said these words, you took something very precious from me, I will never talk to her again, I will never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you. And may God have mercy on your soul. And you see how it's not a sort of whitewash or clearing away. It's like, this is real. The guilt is real. And yet, I forgive you. And from the bottom of my heart, may God have mercy on your soul. See, Jesus breaks chains. Sets us free. This knowing that we are forgiven, this sort of fundamental thing to our identity, sets us free in a few different ways. Firstly, free to forgive. Charleston, enough said. It's like the air we breathe in. Breathing in this grace of God and then we can breathe it out again. Number two, he breaks the chains. Sets us free. Free to be known. We are free to share our stuff like I did with my friend uh, back in Oxford. There's a couple of guys, Paul is one of them, who routinely we get together to share and pray for each other, to try not to have any secrets. James says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. So it's kind of an issue of obedience, but actually it's the way to life as well. How can we do that? Because we are forgiven. That stuff, those deep, dark secrets that we all have, that shadow side is not the final word. There is a better word being spoken of you, which sets you free actually to be like, do you know what? I can talk about this because that's not, that's not the end of it. And as you do that, light pours in and things change. And when you are lying awake at night or first thing in the morning with that heavy heart and like, oh, I can't believe this is the reality I'm now living in. Actually, hope, green shoots of hope can spring up. The fresh air of the mercy of God and change the atmosphere, that thing that you can't even bring yourself to think about right now as I'm talking because it's too dangerous. You've carried that around too long. You can do it. You can find, if you've got no trusted friend that you think you can make that confession with, come, come and tell me. It would be an absolute honor. To hear that and not bolt out the door and not label you a dirty sinner, but say, Yeah. To be able to manifest the grace of God to you. This is how it, you know, coming in on a Sunday at the beginning, we do that confession thing. That can be something, it can be nothing if we're honest. It's when we sit and put words to it, reveal ourselves, that we get to the grace of God to be made real to one another. It's a precious. Sacred thing, and I just want to encourage you into that, into that way of doing life. It sets us free to be known, and it sets us free to recognise beauty, like the woman in the story, who's the one who sees, who's not caught up in whatever else uh, is going on with Simon the Pharisee, but is the one who can see. It sets us free to be ourselves. Our identity is restored. It was given in the first place. We spoilt it and it gets restored to us. It's grace. It's a gift. It's not for us to create ourselves and cover over the bad stuff as if we could ever do that. It is bad stuff, but there's grace. It's real and powerful. It will change everything. The final thing to say, the kicker with the John Newton story, of course, is that even after his conversion after that miraculous shipwreck, he carries on, you know, he's sort of, he's, he's seen the light, apparently, but he carries on slaving. He does three more trips across. So presumably, and it wasn't until, I think, like 15 years after he wrote Amazing Grace that he formally renounces his involvement in the slave trade. And so when he's writing those words, like, I once was blind and now I see, save the wretch like me, presumably what he has in mind is his boozing, and his licentious behavior and he's still so caught up in the culture of the day and the the way that has been normalized to him that he can't even see the blood on his hands. And I I mention that to close just as a caution in case there's those of us who are singing the songs about grace but actually walking a bit more like Simon the Pharisee than the broken woman fallen at Jesus' feet. Thankfully, the grace of God, once it got under his skin, didn't leave him there. And in due course, he does see the light and is horrified at the error of his ways and becomes this influential um, abolitionist, is that the word? And he lives to see the day, it's like the last year of his life, uh, where some repair is given um, as the slave trade in Britain is abolished others, this is all too raw, all too real. You don't need any convincing. (laughs) Um, The lie you're hearing is probably, this forgiveness is not for me. I couldn't... No, 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 no. If it's for John Newton, it's for you. There's a generosity wider than the oceans. All we do is humbly say yes.